0: Our sermon today is taken from James 3, verse 13 to 18. This is the Word of God. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Devin. So friends, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that we're going through currently the book of James. Let me just give a quick recap of what the book of James is. It's a letter, initially, written by James to the churches in his day. Why? Because the churches in his day were suffering. They're going through a lot of hard things for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons of why they were suffering is because there was a lot of division. There's a lot of infighting uh, between different factions in the church. What kind of division? Well, explicitly mentioned in the book of James, earlier in chapter 2, I believe, there's division between the rich and the poor. So in the church, there are people who are financially well off, and there are people who are not financially well off. And they were not getting along with one another. Another likely division going on in the church at that day is between, although not explicitly mentioned in the, in the letter, but implied, is, is between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. Okay, they were also not getting along with one another. Another division perhaps going on today was the division between different theological camps in the church, okay? Sounds similar to our city today or maybe our churches today, right? Racial division, financial division, theological division, okay? This is relevant for us today. It's relevant for the church in all ages and... If you're here today and you're not, uh, you're still exploring Christianity. If you're here today and you're still exploring the gospel, you're still trying to figure out who Christ is, what the Bible is, then you may not get the um, how intense a church split is because you just haven't experienced what it means to be part of a church. But it's a big deal because Christians would claim the Bible says the church is a portrayal of God's love, is a portrayal of of uh, God's. Uh, Unity, You know, if God's, if God's uh, wanting, uh, his, his sacrifice, his mercy, his grace is supposed to be displayed here. So when this breaks, it really hurts the Christian's heart because we have just, we've messed up God's, God's display of who he is to the world. So it's a big deal. But also, if you go back to that day and age of the church, a lot of Christians were persecuted back then. It's not, today it's kind of, you know, a good thing to be a Christian. Like, culture at least somewhat acknowledges it, depending on what culture, I guess. But back then, it was generally not a good thing. Culture did not like you believing in Christ as Lord and Savior. They did not want you to follow Christ, and, and so they persecuted you. So a lot of these people, their only family, they've been persecuted by their families they're thrown out of their churches. A lot of Christians, their only family back then was the church. This was a tight-knit community. And when that breaks, it feels like your family unit. Is breaking apart. If, you know, have you ever had friends that was closer than family and it, things got messed up and things break? It hurts. It's a big deal. So James takes this as a big deal. And this whole letter really was just kind of encouraging them but also rebuking them. You know, James was telling them, look, you guys can't get along. Why? Because in chapter 1 we saw you guys, you guys need to start learning how to be slow to anger. Okay? That's one thing. Another thing you guys need to start learning, we studied this in chapter 2, is that you guys need to stop showing partiality between one group and the other group. And the third thing we saw, James say you guys, need to, you guys need to learn how to control your tongue, how to control your speech. We talked about that last week in chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. And now we're finishing off chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. James here addresses yet another huge reason of why the church was not handling differences well. And that's because, as we see, they lacked, or we lack, wisdom and understanding. We lack wisdom and understanding. So what does James mean by wisdom and understanding? How can the church back then um, uh, uh, be united, or how can their situation be helped by having more wisdom and understanding? Well, there's five things I want to point out about wisdom and understanding and how we can help church unity. First one, it's definition. Second point, it's sign. Third point, it's enemy. Fourth point, It's fruit. Fifth point, it's demand. Okay? What is wisdom and understanding? It's definition, it's sign, it's enemy, it's fruit, it's demand. Let's start with the first one. <coughs> point one, it's definition. All right. Let's talk about the first part of verse 13. In the, in the printouts, it's the first verse there in the, in the sermon passage. Who is wise and understanding among you? James is asking. Wise and understanding. Now, I'm going to explain what these two words mean in the Greek. Not because that's my idea of fun, but because I think for this particular situation, it could actually help uh, us understanding the point he's trying to get across. Okay, so the Greek word for wisdom here is Sophia. It's where we get the word sophisticated from. To, to be sophisticated at something, it just means you're very skilled. You know, you're very, you're very skilled at a particular thing. A sophisticated violinist, violinist a sophisticated mathematician is someone who's very skilled in violin or in math, okay? So, Sophia is wisdom, uh, skillfulness. Understanding, the second word, the Greek word for that is episteme. Episteme is where we get the English word epistemology. The word episteme is different from Sophia in that it refers not just to one's expertise in a particular field, it refers more to having the ability to see how everything works together in a macro scale. <clears throat> Here's some examples. If Sophia, wisdom, is having deep knowledge of the demographic in your city, do you guys know that? By the way, the demographic Jakarta. I didn't have to look it up. Thirty-five uh, percent Javanese, twenty-seven percent Betawi, fifteen percent Sundanese, and six percent Chinese. That's that's uh, Sophia. You know their city well, okay episteme is understanding what kind of research method was done in order to get that data. Do you see what I'm saying? It's kind of a macro step back. Okay. If Sophia is having deep knowledge of algebra, 10 plus 10 equals 20. I know that's not deep knowledge of algebra (laughs) for some of you, but for me, that's a win, okay? If, If Sophia is having deep knowledge of algebra, episteme is understanding how the concept of logic works to then make, that allows you to do math at all. Does that make sense? It's a step back. Last one. If Sophia refers to having deep knowledge of world history, this event happened at this year, at this day, in this country, you have a deep knowledge of that. Episteme is understanding through whose perspective was that history written and why did they get to write it. You see the difference there? Okay. Sophia and Episteme. All right? So, um, for the sake of simplicity, Sophia and Episteme, wisdom and understanding, we're just going to call that wisdom for today. Okay? So wisdom is both wisdom and understanding. So, so Sophia and Episteme, that, that's our working definition for today. So let's, let me make this concept, I think it's still a bit too airy for us. Let me try and make it more vivid. Okay? Let me give you some examples of wisdom. <clears throat> if you follow tennis, I do, there's a player that you would know, or even if you don't follow tennis, you probably know him. His name is Federer. He's wise when it comes to tennis. What do I mean? Okay, he knows how to hit a forehand well. He knows how to hit a backhand. He knows how to serve. He knows the rules of tennis well, but if you know Federer, he's not particularly known for being the hardest hitter in the circuit, like Tsonga. He's not necessarily known to being the guy with the biggest serve in the circuit, like Nick Kyrgyz. He's not known to being uh, the most athletic tennis player in the circuit, like Rafael Nadal. He's actually, Federer is probably actually the least athletic person in tennis, you can argue that. But if you know Federer, you'll know that he has 20 Grand Slams, more than any other player in history. And what's more surprising, he won his last Grand Slam when he was 36, making him the second oldest player to ever win a Grand Slam in the history of the sport, and everybody's astounded. He's not a hard hitter, he's not the biggest server, he's not athletic at all. But even at 36, he's able to win Grand Slams and he won 20 of them? What in the world? How is this guy doing all this? And no one uses the word wisdom. But here's what people say. He he just really knows the game really well. You know, here's what people say. He's He's just really tennis smart. He just knows how to win. What they really mean is that he's wise. He's able to see connections and relationships during a tennis game that no other player is able to see, even if they're more athletic than him. He's able to choose the right kind of strategy against the right kind of opponent using the right kind of shots, the right kind of weakness, depending on the right kind of surface, based on the particular kind of climate and time of day they're playing at, producing a particular kind of outcome. That's wisdom, it's more than just having deep knowledge of how to hit a forehand and a backhand. It's more than just knowing the book knowledge of tennis rules. It's, it's, it's wisdom. It's seeing these connections. What makes, let me ask you, a great composer? It's not that they know more notes than another composer. If you're at that level of, you know, composing, you know all the same notes. You know what A minor, B minor, you know, A major, B major sounds like. You know that information in your head it's not like this guy knows how a violin sounds like and this composer doesn't. They all know the same kind of instruments. So what makes a composer greater than another? Well, because some composers are able to see the relationships and combinations between these particular notes and between these particular instruments in such a way that produces a beautiful piece that other composers don't see. That's wisdom. It's much more than just head knowledge. What wisdom does, it allows you to see connections and relationships between things in such a way that provides tact and discernment of how to move forward. And the church in James Day, he's saying, was lacking that. People knew their theology. People knew their Bible verses. But they didn't have wisdom. And it's different. It's different. Let's continue down the passage. Hopefully we'll get a clear understanding of it, okay? Second point. Here's a sign that you have wisdom. Let's, let's take a look at verses 13 to 15. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So what we see here is that there are people in the church back then who presented themselves to be wise in understanding, but they really were not. Okay, they perhaps had a lot of Bible knowledge. They perhaps had a lot of theological knowledge. But James could say, they're not, you're not wise. Why? Because the biblical and theological information that I had up here did not connect itself, did not relate itself, did not, you could say, harmonize itself with the heart. So they're smart, yes, but they're not wise. So you may be able to quote 50 verses about God's love, but if your heart is not loving, you may be smart, but you're not wise, you may have a lot of theology about God's sacrifice. You may know the concept of God's double imputation on the cross. You may be able to know all these Old Testament sacrifices and how it connects to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, which is Christ. And know the verses, know the connections. But if you're not a sacrificial person, you may be smart, but you're not wise. You may know Bible verses and the doctrine of the Imago Dei, how mankind was made in the image of God. God. And you know all the verses, you know all the theology, but if you're not somebody who treats another human being with respect, value, and honor, you may be smart, you see, but you're not wise. See, a wise person has their biblical theological understanding not only up here, but down here. And when that happens, guess what the result is? James says, the end of verse 13, the result is meekness. That's a sign you have wisdom. When your head knowledge comes down here, meekness is produced, okay? Meekness proves, the Bible up here has immersed itself down here, proves your smarts have been turned to wisdom. And you know what meekness does? When you're meek, it allows you to slow down and become wise on how to solve a particular problem or a situation or a division. And this is important not only for the church context, but for your work, for your family life, for your friend life. And that's what James was saying at the day. Look, you you don't have wisdom. You know, all of them saw the problem in the church, right? The poor Christians saw the rich Christians excluding them. That's a problem. The rich Christians saw the poor Christians resenting and hating them. That's a problem. The Jewish Christians saw the non-Jewish Christians who were not really versed in the Old Testament, so they're bringing in probably not the most accurate kind of theology. That's a problem. And the non-Jewish Christians saw the Jewish Christians a little stuck up because they knew the Old Testament really well and because racially they had a superiority uh, sense about themselves. That's a problem. A lot of problems. You can identify the problems. And each camp knew the Bible verses to use. Each camp knew the theological arguments to deploy to win their fight. But what they started doing is all they did just barked these Bible verses to each other. They just started barking all this theology to each other. If you do that, James is saying, you may be smart, but you're not wise. You're not wise. Tati and I recently watched a documentary, Tati's my wife. Watched a documentary called, you might have seen it, Dr. Rogers. It's about Dr. Rogers. You know Dr. Rogers, who he is? He's actually an ordained Presbyterian minister, which I'm happy about, who decided to make a TV show for kids called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Aired 1960s to 1990s. And Tom Hanks actually made a movie about it last year. Okay? And you watch Dr. Rogers and his shows, YouTube it later, you'll see he's always gentle. He's always kind. He's always humble. He always speaks so softly and so mildly. And you would think, oh my, you know, what a kind guy. Never gets heated. Never loses his temper. But to to my surprise, and I think to the surprise of many people, during one of the interviews, someone asked him, "Uh, why did you decide to produce this kind of TV show for kids? And you'd never guess his answer. You know what he said? He said, because I'm angry. Ever go? What? You're angry? Yeah. He said, "I'm, I'm angry. I'm frustrated at the amount of junk that our TV is giving our children today. That's what made me want to produce an alternative option for kids on TV." In other words, he produced a kind, wholesome, gentle TV show for kids. Why? Because he was angry. Do you see? That's the meekness of wisdom. It's not the absence of anger. It's not the absence of frustration. This guy had the Bible smarts in his head infiltrate his heart and it made him an actual loving, enduring, long-suffering, patient, kind, sacrificial kind of man which gave him the ability to not just bark at the world for the sparkle it lacks. It allowed him to slow down look at the situation, observe connections, relationships between all the moving parts, between all the different notes, and come up with a beautiful solution that actually helps the problem. You know, what would be the best way to approach this? How should I start? I really want to explode here emotionally, but if I do this, it may hurt this relationship, and if this relationship hurts, this other relationship will be hurt, and that's not good for the situation. So maybe I would start bringing it up in this way, and I'll start with this point, not with this point, because this guy's more sensitive about this point. And because of that, you know, you see, you have, you can step back, you can, you can like a, a wise composer, take all the notes together, and put them into an actual solution slow to anger. You're able to bridle your tongue, all the things James has been talking about. In the day, in the church in that day, James saw they lacked that. They saw the problem. They intellectually knew the Bible verses to use, intellectually knew the theology to use uh, to address the problem, but they were not slow to anger. They were not able to bridle their tongue. All they did was just bark out these Bible verses. That means you're not wise. They're Bible smart, but if it hasn't seeped into their hearts, You're not wise. And because of it, they weren't able to solve these problems with tact and discernment. But why? Why is their Bible smarts not filling up into their hearts? Why is it not seeping into their hearts? Because, James says and continues in our passage, because their hearts were already filled up with something else. Third point, wisdom's enemy. Look at verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. There it is. Wisdom's enemy, bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition. These different factions in the church in James' day did not search the scriptures to simply know God. That would have produced meekness. They searched the scriptures. They wanted to get Bible smart so that they can have ammo to hurt the other camp and use it to advance their own agenda, the popularity of their own group. Does that not happen today? In a large scale between churches, in a large scale between denominations, does it not happen today in our own hearts as individuals here? Have we not often used scriptural knowledge or any kind of knowledge really to build up our own reputations and beat others down? Have we not used, in this case, our Bible knowledge to assert some kind of superiority over another person? The problem isn't with knowledge. The problem isn't with Bible knowledge. Bible knowledge is great. The problem is selfish ambition. We have that in our hearts. Why do we have that in our hearts? Because in verse 14, the second thing James says is bitter jealousy. They're connected, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. What is bitter jealousy? The simplest way to describe it in the English language is probably by the word envy. Envy. This is what made people want to capitalize on their Bible knowledge or whatever knowledge they have for the sake of building up their own glory, their own factions at the expense of others. It's because they're envious of one another. That's the real problem. And friends, once you're caught in the cycle of envy, it's a tiresome and it's a never-ending battle. Why do I say that? Well, think about someone you are currently envying. Think about them, okay? If you're not currently envying anybody, then consider somebody in the past you've envied. Think about him. If you have never envied anybody in the past, then consider the fact that you may not be a human being. <laughs> so just be, be honest with yourself, all right? Just, you've envied before, we all know it, it's okay. We all envy, think about that person, think about who that is, all right? And I want to ask this question. What would satisfy your envy more? What does your envy seek out most? What does it want most? Would your envy be satisfied once you have what that person has? Or will your envy be truly satisfied once other people begin to envy you in the same way you envy them? What would satisfy the thirst of your envy more? Having what the person you envy has or being envied in the same way by others You envy them. You see what I'm saying? Most people I asked say the second thing. Because, I think, what envious people envy most is to be envied. Do you see how endless that pursuit is? It's never ending. Because the only way your envy can be satisfied is if you're on the top of the envy ladder. And there's no one left to envy. And that was a problem with the church back then. Each faction in the church were were racing to the top of the envy throne using the ladder of biblical knowledge so that they looked wise, they looked smart, but they really were not. If that's what you're doing, James says, don't claim to be wise. Don't claim to be wise. He says in verse 15, you're acting earthly or worldly. And if that's not a strong enough word, he continues, you're acting unspiritually And verse 15, if that's not yet as strong enough for it, he continues, you're acting like a demon. You're being demonic. You may look smart, you're not wise. And all your actions will lead to, look at verse 15, is a disorder and vile practice. That's all it's going to do. If you use your smarts to glorify yourself and build yourself up, whether in a church, whether in your family, whether in your friend group, whether in your workplace. All you will do is cause disorder and vile practice. So let's summarize, okay. Envy, envy will make you wanna capitalize on your Bible knowledge for selfish gain. And the fruit of selfish gain is disorder in the church and vile practice. Envy makes you want to capitalize on your knowledge uh, for selfish gain, and that creates disorder and vile practice. In the church, James is talking about here, but really anywhere too. But true wisdom and understanding, it takes the Bible knowledge that you have in your head and relates it into your heart, producing meek wisdom. But what is the fruit of meek wisdom? We haven't answered that yet. Envy produces uh, capitalizing on Baba knowledge, producing selfish gain, leads to disorder and vile practice, but true wisdom producing meekness, but we don't know what the fruit of meekness is yet, which leads us to our fourth point, wisdom's fruit, okay? This is how you know that you have meekness. Verse 17, here it is, the fruit of meekness of wisdom. But the wisdom from above is eight things, pure, then peaceful, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Eight things. If, you're, if you have true wisdom, if you um, are meek, you will be morally pure, you'll be peaceful, uh, you'll be gentle. You'll be reasonable. You'll you'll be filled with mercifulness. You would have honorable behavior, which just means good works, honorable behavior. You'll be impartial and you'll be sincere. These are eight virtues of the fruit of wisdom. But it's important to remember that these aren't eight separate things. James isn't talking about eight different people with eight different character qualities. He's talking about eight virtues that all reside in the one person who is meek and wise. It's a tall order. So if anybody here ever thought they were meek and wise, let's read James's qualification here. It's a tall order. Okay? They're all intertwined and connected with each other. You can't separate them. If you're morally pure, you will also have good fruits. If you're morally pure, you will also be honorable in your behavior. You can't be morally pure and dishonorable in your behavior. You see what I'm saying? They're logically connected one with the other. If you're a peaceable person, you will also logically be a merciful person. You can't be peaceful without being merciful. You see what I'm saying? And if that's true, you'll also be a gentle person. They're all interconnected. The last two, if you're sincere in your relationships, meaning that you treat everyone the same, right? If you're sincere in your relationship, you will also logically be impartial. You won't pick and choose. You won't, you see what I'm saying? They're, they're all logically connected, all these eight things, one with another, the meekness of wisdom in other words is the beautiful tune that all of these 8 musical notes make when they ensemble together. That's the meekness of wisdom. This is what you need James is saying. This is what you need to be able for lack of better verb. This is what you need to be able to Mr. Rogers things. <laughs> you see? This is what you need to be able to Mr. Rogers the divisions in your church or other areas in your life. If you aren't peaceable, gentle, and merciful and all those good stuff, that means your Bible smart has not yet entered to your heart. You're not wise. And look, you may have identified problems correctly. You may know the Bible verses to use and the theological nuances to use to address those problems. But when you open your mouth, you're just going to start barking at everybody. You're not going to have the tenacity to endure the rage, to be slow to anger, as we saw James talked about in chapter one, to to bridle that tongue, as James talked about in chapter two, to where you'd be able to take your time, step back, and come up with a tact and beautiful solution based on all the connections within the situation that other people may not see. You're not going to help anything if you're just smart and you're not wise. Be wise, Christian. That's what he's saying. Be, bear these kinds of virtues. And when the Christian is wise, when the Christian bears the fruit of meekness in an individual level and display those eight things, what will happen is, a second kind of fruit, the church as a community will also bear fruit. Look at verse 18. You will sow a harvest of righteousness. So the picture here is that a collection of meek people will turn the church into a greenhouse environment conducive for producing even more righteousness. You see? You know how when you make a mistake, it feels much more conducive and safe to admit those faults and process how to be better with a meek friend compared to with a friend who's full of themselves. Is that not true? It's much easier to confess and repent and grow with this, in, in the presence of this meek friend than it is in the presence of this prideful friend who's just full of themselves. In the same way, a meek and safe church brings out a similar effect. You'll feel safe to admit your faults. It's okay. You'll grow in righteousness. You'll repent. You know, your gloves won't be up so high all the time because everyone's meek Everyone's kind, everyone's understanding and gentle. None of them is full of themselves trying to one-up one another. Meekness does not grow only the individuals in the community, but also grows the community as a whole, which will then in turn create an environment most conducive for the individual to continue to grow in. That's the fruit of wisdom. So, how are we doing CCC? Are we a wise church? Are we? Or are we just smart? Or are we either? I don't know. Are we wise? Or are we barking our theology in Bible verses in such a way that is not tact? That is not discerning and actually helps nobody. All it does makes us flex our muscles to the city. But it does not glorify God, it does not do any actual real good. Are we wise? It's a tall order <laughs> to be pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial sincere, all in one person. That's hard. And that's why I think James reminds his readers here in verse 17, before he lists these characteristics, look at verse 17, the beginning of it. That's why James says, this kind, this kind of wisdom can only come from above. He already said this, by the way, in verse 15. Okay, this wisdom comes from above. He repeats it again in verse 17. This wisdom comes from above. He repeats that concept twice in the span of five verses. That telling you it's important to him, okay? It's like he's saying, look, do you feel inadequate? Do you feel unable to muster up these virtues in yourself? Good. You can't. It's impossible for you to do that on your own strength. It has to come from above. It has to come from God. He has to give it to you. And once you have it, it'll change you. Once you have it, it'll change your community. But my last point, once you have it, it'll also demand something of you. Wisdom will demand something of you. Okay, last point. Let's take a look at the last part of verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I want to point out here, this is important. James says here, wise people... Make peace. They're peacemakers. That's different than peacekeepers. You're not peacekeepers. You're, you're peacemakers. The, work, the, the, the Greek word for make here has this intonation of constructing. You're constructing peace. You're authoring peace. You're initiating peace. There's a huge difference. I think a lot of people mistake when we talk about meekness. People think we're talking about being peacekeepers, right? Where we just kind of, you know, if there's a wrong out there. We just kind of stay quiet. don't say anything just kind of take it when we see immorality in the church when we see heretical doctrine in the church you know just don't say anything about it just just keep the peace keep quiet no no that's a peacekeeper that's not a peacemaker a peacemaker doesn't passively wait and stay quiet in the safety of home while there's a mess out there they make peace where peace did not exist before if there's immorality in the church that means there's a lack of peace between the church and between the actions. There's a, there's a, there's a lack of peace between, um, uh, sorry, the church's actions and the church's belief system. You see what I'm saying? The, the peacemaker identifies that and goes out to make peace. Look, you're not acting, you're not living out your faith that you believe. You're not in peace with it. They go out, they make peace. When the, when the church's uh, uh, spirit, uh Statement of faith is not in line with what the Bible is saying. There's a lack of peace there between the doctrines of what is preached on Sunday and what the Bible is saying. There's a lack of peace. The peacekeeper just stays quiet. The peacemaker initiates, does something about it. They go out. They create that, look, you're not living in peace with this. And, 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 they, and, they, and they talk about it. They speak about it. They deal with it. But, but they Mr. Rogers it. They Mr. Rogers it. You know? They don't just bark around. Like a skilled composer. Their meekness of wisdom allows them to be slow to anger and bridle their tongue, allows them to see connections between people, situations, emotional tensions, relational baggage, institutional sensitivities that may exist, and they move towards peace where it did not exist once before. Are we wise? Now, we are, CCC is a reformed church, okay? I think we are. I hope we are. I know we are, okay? We're a reformed church. And we value things like what Martin Luther did when he nailed the 95 thesis on, on the church door and when he, you know, he spoke with with vigor, right, and internal gusto. We, we value that. And that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. Some situations do require more of an emphatic action. That's good. And that's right. I... I just wonder if, for the most part, we all skip there too quickly. I wonder. I wonder if we skip to that point too quickly. Are there maybe 20 other steps we could have done to do it in a way that is, that is filled with meekness of wisdom? Some situations require more emphatic action, yes. I wonder if we're too quickly, too quickly skipping to it. Now, it's, it's costly and hard to live like this, okay? It's, it's costly for you. It's hard for you to make peace between the church's heretical doctrine and the Bible. It's costly for you to step out like that and do something like that. It, it, it's costly for you to talk to your friend kindly and say, hey, the way you're living your life is not what the Bible says. There, there's a lack of peace and unity between what you say you believe and the way you live your life. It's costly. It's risky to do that. But if you truly have wisdom, there's something in you that will drive you to want to do it. You can't help but do it. You want to protect the name of Christ and his church. You want to help others grow in, in Christ-like maturity. Why is that? Why does, when you have peace, when you have wisdom, when, when the information about the Bible goes to your heart, you're going to have this desire to do that meekly, kindly. Why? Because the wise Christian understands wisdom truly did come down from heaven for them. When James was talking about it, he wasn't just trying to be poetic about it. Wisdom did really come for you. What am I talking about? Let me read to you how Paul described Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 to 24. Here are Paul's words. Where is the one who is wise? He's being sarcastic here, like he always often is. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews, see, one faction, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and, look, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, the whole Bible is saying, is the word of God, the the logos, the truth, the wisdom. He is God, in fact, himself who came down from heaven for you. Why did the wisdom of God, why did Jesus Christ come down from heaven for you? Why? To bark at you? No. He came down from heaven to meekly die in your place and take the cross that you and I deserve upon his own shoulders. The wise man Knows this, not just up here. In here. When you know it up here, it might make you prideful, but if you know it in here, it'll mess you up. It'll change everything about your life. Are you wise? Is Jesus Christ just a Savior, or is He your Savior? Are you wise? If you are wise, if this wisdom has infiltrated your heart, you're, you can't help yourself. But risk. Go out there. Make peace where peace is not between how somebody, a Christian lives and, and, and their worldview. If there's a lack of peace there or between the church and its doctrine, if there's a... You're going to do it, but you're going to do it wisely. You're going to do it with meekness. Okay? And you know what desire you'll find feeling less of slowly? If... You'll feel less envious. You'll feel less of a desire to climb up the envy ladder. How can you? How can you have that desire when the one on the top of the ladder came down to die for you? Are you wise, or is all this stuff just stuck up here? Are you wise? Have you changed? Is Jesus a savior to you, or is he just a savior? You'll you'll never grow in the meekness of wisdom unless you first see wisdom came down from above, became meek for you, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Will you receive this? Or will the wisdom of the world continue to reign in your hearts? I pray you do, that God will give you the wisdom to receive him a wisdom that can only come from him let's pray father what a tall order something i hope we all see that we can't muster up in from within ourselves we can't just grit our teeth and cause us to produce these eight virtues that accumulate together into the meekness of wisdom we don't have it in us, and if we think we do, we just probably haven't lived life all, long enough yet to be humbled. Help us, Father, realize that, and make us run to You. Make us see that the wisdom came from above, that He embodied in the person of Christ, the incarnate God the Son, died on a cross. He brattled His tongue; He didn't say a word. Isaiah says. He kept silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. And now, as the Lamb of God who hangs on the cross, through His death, we now can be cleansed. Through His death, we now can be accepted. How can we envy? What higher price tag can there be than the blood of God for our souls? Help us, Father, be wise. Help us envy no more. Help us realize who we are in Christ, that we don't have to beat each other down and climb up that envy ladder. Help us us be wise and meek. Let not this information hang out in our heads, but affect our souls. I pray this as we sing this last song. I pray this, that you would help us behold the Lamb of victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.